1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Bow your heads with me as I pray. Father in heaven, this message of grace is a message we need to hear. This this message of peace is one for which our hearts long. In a world filled with with turmoil, in a world filled with chaos, in in our own hearts where we see our sin, Lord, we ask that you would show us the power of your gospel, the hope of grace that comes to us through Jesus Christ. So, Father in heaven, those that, that come with, with big questions about the truthfulness of your word, that come and, and wonder if, if there is any hope in this gospel, Lord, I pray that you would make known to them the lordship of Jesus, his power and dominion, but also his grace on display. Lord, change our hearts so that we might be like Christ. Lord, we come asking to, to hear you speak to us through the power of your word. We come in confidence because of what you have accomplished for us in Jesus. And so we come in his name. Amen. You might not be a big fan of the Miss Universe pageant, but you probably heard about the mix-up that happened a couple of weeks ago. At the end of the, the event, they, they, they crown the winner. And so the host announces that Miss Columbia has won. They put the crown on her head, the, the band begins to play, and for two minutes the crowd cheers until the host, comedian Steve Harvey, comes back out and apologizes because they'd crowned the wrong person. He'd misread the card. Miss Columbia hadn't actually won She was the runner-up. And so he announces the real winner, Miss Philippines, and they take the crown from Miss Columbia and put it on now the bewildered Miss Philippines who doesn't even take the the celebratory walk but just sort of stands there shell-shocked as the music again plays and the crowd again cheers. Now, you may not care much about beauty pageants, and you probably weren't concerned that, oh no, Columbia has, has lost when this would have been two years in a row for them. You probably aren't concerned about those details, but, but you sort of feel for Miss Columbia, don't you? I mean, months of preparation and hard work, and to win, well, not really win, but to think you'd won for two minutes, to have the crown stripped away from you. It feels like such an injustice, and, it, and we, I mean, we almost feel anxious for her because it's the kind of anxiety that, that we feel. Now, now perhaps not on the, the stage of a beauty pageant for you, but, but maybe it's that kind of anxiety that you bring with you into relationships where, okay, things seem to be going okay right now. Things are all right but if, but if he really knew what I was like, it would fall apart. Or, or you're just worried about things will come crashing down. Or maybe it's at, at work or at school where, where you're struggling just to, to survive. Struggling to, 
to just get by and you think if my boss or if my professor figures out that I'm, I'm not really cut out for this. You feel like it's at any moment that crown could be taken off your head. Or maybe that's how you feel walking into church today. Yeah, you look nice and you, maybe even with a, a New Year's resolution, you've made a, a new commitment to, to kind of get right with God and yet you walk in today and you, you fear somebody figuring out who you really are. Or worse, you fear somebody already knows. And so you live with the anxiety that, that you'll be exposed, that the crown will be t- taken from you, that, that everyone will know what you already feel, that you don't deserve to be here. In these opening words to the Apostle Paul, they, they might be words that we'd be quick to kind of jump over. All right, it's Paul writing to the Corinthians, grace and peace, good, good, good. Now let's get on to the good stuff. We, we actually find, though, in these words the, the reminder to the Corinthian church of who they are. Because this church is a complete mess, a total disaster. This is one of those passages where, where pastors are reminded, if you think things are bad for you, then read Corinthians. Because you'll be really encouraged about how, how well things are going in your own church. Because this church is a, such a complete disaster that, that Paul is writing to answer questions for them of, of questions they've raised. And when you go through the book, you realize, wow, they're doing some terrible things. And then he, he continues the letter by saying, and these are other questions you probably should have asked, but maybe we're even too afraid to ask. And he exposes then even worse things about this church. And so for any church that, that, would, re, that would realize that, that, that based on their own track record, not only would, do they not deserve to have the crown on their heads, they're not even in the pageant. And yet, what does Paul do here? He reminds the church of who they are. You, church, are the church of God. You, church, have been made holy by God. You are recipients of grace and peace from God. And so this passage for us then is a, a powerful reminder of, of who we are. That our victory, our status is secure in Jesus Christ if you've put your trust in him. But it demands from us a response. And so we'll look at the the call of God and the response of God's people. Call and response. First, notice with me how the apostle introduces himself. It's actually, I think, really helpful in ancient letters that the writer puts his name first compared to the way you and I conventionally write letters where you have to flip all the way to the end to figure out. Now, with email or with the return address on the envelope, you already know who it's from. But, but in an ancient letter, the first person you identify is the writer. So that's what Paul does. It's Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, Paul is throwing out a pretty big title. He's an apostle one sent by God as an official messenger, one of the appointed few chosen by God as a representative. And so we might think, look at Paul strutting his stuff here, putting the church in line. Listen up, church. Well, that actually is what Paul's doing. He's telling the church to listen, but not to him, to the one who sent him. Paul's only worth listening to because of he is called by God, by the will of God. He is an apostle sent by God. And, 
And just, I mean, remember how gracious God's initiative is here. The very fact that, that this is a letter from Paul, the man who was formerly known as Saul, the persecutor of the church, the one who was on the road to Damascus, not for vacation, but to persecute the church, that's when God called him. And so the fact that this letter would come from Paul shows us God's gracious initiative, but it also shows us God's authority. Paul has been called by the will of God, and so he's telling the church, it is time to listen. That's what the Word of God is for us. It is God's authoritative Word. Now, now we as, as modern people, as sophisticated people, we don't, we don't like to be told what to do. We don't like somebody putting their, themselves in a position of authority over us, but that's, that's actually the exact same position the Corinthians would have been in. Corinth was a, a city that had been founded about 100 years before this because it had been destroyed and left empty for 100 years. And so the Romans rebuilt the city and they sent lots of freedmen and women, formerly slaves, so, so in the Roman economy, just a step above slaves. But this was a place you could go and make something of yourself. Because Corinth is on this little isthmus, this little kind of tiny stretch of the peninsula where, where all of the trade routes come through. There's a port on either side, and you can save a ton of time by dropping off goods on one side, shipping it across, and then sailing it from there, rather than sailing all the way around the Greek archipelago. And so it's this city that's it's in a great position in terms of, of trade routes, in terms of it, it's defensible, you've got this big mountain here, and there's lots of fresh water. And so it's close enough to... To, to Athens to be an important city, but it also hosts the Isthmian Games every two years. And so it's a place to be. But it's not a place of historical prestige like Athens or of, of imperial power like Rome. It's a place where you go if you want to build yourself up. And so if you live in Corinth and you've made something of yourself, it's because of the hard work you put in. Because you're, you're an individual who's, who's risen to the challenge. And so for somebody to show up and say, listen to me, I come with an authority from God, I am an authoritative messenger, in Corinth, that message just doesn't play well. In Wilmington, in the 21st century, that message doesn't play well. Because we don't like to be told what to do. And actually, because we've, we've read Friedrich Nietzsche and, and Foucault, well, we didn't actually read them, we were supposed to read them in college, but we know these philosophers, they, they tell us that any kind of claim to religious authority, like the claim that Paul is making here, that he's a messenger from God, the only reason that, that anyone makes that kind of claim is to put you under their thumb, to, to kind of hold you in a position of weakness so that, that he can have authority over you. Any claim to religious truth, Nietzsche would tell us, is a power play. Now, the nice thing about philosophers like Nietzsche and, and Foucault is, is they weren't just critical of religious people, they were just critical of everyone. I mean, so they, they kind of turned their, their aim on, 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 on the, the left, the right, the, the, the religious, the irreligious. But, but is that what Paul's doing here? I mean, is, is Paul setting himself up as the man that has to be listened to? No, he's humbly coming in and saying, and, and, and particularly as you read through the letter and you find that, 
that the message that he brings is a message that he knows sounds like foolishness. And he's not an eloquent speaker. He's not a powerful man. He's coming humbly to them. And, and even identifying himself as, as one called to be an apostle. He doesn't just say, the apostle Paul, period. He's called by Jesus Christ, by the will of God. He's humbly coming to them. And actually, when we, when we press Nietzsche and, and philosophers like Foucault a little further, hear what they're saying. Every truth claim is a power play, which means Nietzsche's truth claim that every truth claim is a power play is itself a power play. I mean, you, you see the philosophical inconsistency. It's, it's skepticism when pressed to its end has to be skeptical about itself. See, skepticism is really no position at all because it doesn't actually let you wrestle with the truth of anything. It just calls into question whether anything could be true. And so why would we listen to Nietzsche or Foucault if all they're doing is trying to keep us under their philosopher's thumb? What we actually need to do is stop and consider the truth of the situation. And what Paul is doing is pointing us to grace. Because yes, he comes as one with God's authority, called by God, but, but it's a story of grace. Look at verse 2 at how he describes the church. It is the church of God. The church which belongs to God. The church which God built. It's not Paul's church or Apollos' church or Peter's church. It is God's church. And it's not wrong for us to, to speak that way when, when we say my church or I'm, you know, when we describe this church, faith church, as mine. But it is if, if we're making a theological claim. Because the church belongs to God. It, it's built by God, made by God, chosen by God, called by God. But it's not just surprising that, that Paul would, would describe the church as the church of God. It's that he would say, in Corinth. Because if you lived in the ancient world, well, you kind of looked down on Corinth a little bit. Because of its history of being this, this place of where, where freedmen could go and make something of themselves, and because it was a place where there was a lot of money to be made, it also was a place where vice was celebrated. The first thing you would see when you, when you came toward the city was, the, was a temple essentially dedicated to sexuality. Temple prostitution would have been, would have been rampant, and so religion and, and vice were intertwined in the city. Actually, in the, the ancient world, the word Corinth, the city name, became a verb. So to Corinthize, or to get your Corinth on, meant that, meant that you were doing things that you shouldn't be doing. So Corinth was the, a city with the, the economic potential of New York, with the, the, the entertainment potential of L.A. and the excitement of Las Vegas. And so for, for Paul to say to the church of God in Corinth is a reminder of God's grace. The only way a church can exist in a place like this is if God builds the church. The first century in Corinth feels and sounds a lot like the, the century in which we live. People claim authority for themselves, live however they want, and deny their need for God, and yet God is building his church. God is graciously at work. And that's what we see then in verse 3, when Paul offers a blessing to the church. Now, normally in a letter, Paul has done what you would expect in an ancient letter. He's identified himself Although it is a bit unusual that, that Paul 
unlike most other ancient writers, often identifies co-writers, in this case Sosthenes, a man who might be the same Sosthenes who was a Jewish religious leader in Acts 18, but maybe not. I mean, it's a common name in the ancient world. We actually don't know anything else about him here, although the Corinthians certainly knew who he was. They weren't confused like we are. Oh yeah, Sosthenes. But Paul would identify himself, identify to whom he was writing, although here he's given us a kind of description of that church. And then ordinarily in a, in a Greek letter, you would simply say greetings. It's the way you write a letter, but Paul doesn't do that. He follows the convention, but he fills it with, with deep religious significance when he turns that, the, the mere formality of greetings into a blessing. I mean, look again at verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for us to speak that way, or for us to hear Paul speak that way, feels familiar to us because every one of his letters begins with a word of grace. They end with a blessing of grace because it really is Paul's theme. Grace, God's undeserved blessing and favor given to his church. Because Paul knows it himself. It's the story of the gospel. So Paul is pointing us to grace which comes to us from God, and peace. Echoing that Old Testament blessing of shalom, peace being given to the people of God. Paul doesn't just extend greetings to the church. He extends the blessing of God. And, and how does he describe God? Good verse 3. God is our Father. He's not merely a sovereign ruler. He is that. He's not merely a distant king. He is the king. But he is our Father. And then he describes Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he introduces Jesus as Lord, this is where, where Paul is demanding from us a response. He's shown us the call of God which has placed on, been placed on him and the church which has been called by God. And now he demands a response from us. Because notice how frequently the name of Jesus is used in these three verses. It's repeated for us four times. And each time it's given to us with the title that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen king, the one sent by God to reign forever. Paul is called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. The church of God has been sanctified in Christ Jesus. We and, and everyone everywhere who's a Christian has called on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to us come to us from our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. Because Paul's message is a message of grace, Paul's theme and Paul's focus is on Jesus. Jesus Christ, the one sent by God. It's a Christological emphasis where, where Jesus' name is repeated again and again in these opening verses. Jesus is the Lord, the, the sovereign authority over us. And that demands a response from us. That's, a, that, that's language that, that, that would make sense in the ancient world. Not just that, that language of the Lord being the sovereign, but, but drawing from that Old Testament language that, that God is the Lord. He is Yahweh, the name that God identifies himself to his people. That's who Jesus is. And so what's the response when we hear the call of God? Look at verse 2. Paul describes Christians everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The response is for us to call on the name of the Lord. Again, echoing the words of the prophets from the Old Testament. That, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so what does that mean? It, it means that, that you recognize that Jesus has sovereign authority over everything and you have rebelled against his authority. That your sin is an affront to Jesus' power and divinity, but yet God is gracious to us. That when we call on him, when we turn from our sin, when we repent, then God is the God who forgives. Because again, how is the church described? Look at verse 2. The church is those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. Those words, sanctified and holy, really have the same root. It's, it's those who have been made holy are called to be holy. Now, we sort of want to theologically kind of separate that and say, well, which is it? Is it that I'm supposed to make myself holy or that I already am holy? Do you see what, what Paul is actually saying? That, that your identity in Christ Jesus means you have been sanctified. You have been washed clean. Your sins have been forgiven. By the, by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, Jesus dying in your place, you have been made holy. Your guilt is dealt with on the, on the cross. You are no longer guilty of sins, but forgiven. The Holy Spirit is at work in your life to, to cleanse you of sin. And so you are holy. You have been sanctified. It's a definitive action that God has taken on our behalf. But then Paul says, verse 2, he says, You have been made holy, you are sanctified, and you are called to be holy. It's, it's, it's both you have been made holy, but you are, you are meant to live a life of holy obedience. And so, so what's the response? It's obedience. And I don't just mean so that you can check off kind of the list of, of New Year's resolutions. I mean a life of radical obedience, submitting yourself to the lordship of Jesus. Because that's a grand kind of cosmic claim that Jesus is Lord of all. He's not just one of the paths to get to heaven. He's the only way to get to heaven. It's a grand cosmic claim, but it's also very personal. For me to call him Lord means I have to submit myself to him. I have to submit my life to his. I have to live the way he commands me to live. See, many of us, we live with that, that fear that the crown is about to be taken off of our heads because we're going to be exposed. Who I really am. But that's what Paul is saying. Who you really are if you've put your trust in Christ, who you really are is one who has been made holy. So now live like it. Now that doesn't mean we, we cover our sin or we hide it. It actually means we, we, we confess our sins. We bring them to, to Christ because, because we no longer live in, in fear that our status will change. Our status is secure. The crown can't be taken from you because the victory was never yours in the first place. Jesus won the victory. And so your status as one who has been sanctified, as a son or daughter of God, as one who can look to God and call him Father, that is secure because of the work of Jesus. But I also know this truth that I've been called to be holy, which means who I am right now isn't the end product. God's not finished 
with me yet. There is room for progress to be made. But not self-striving. It's a relying upon the truth of who I really am. Now I get to live like it. You have been made holy. Now be holy. That's what Paul is telling the church, reminding them of the certainty of their status in Christ Jesus, but also the seriousness of the call to live a life of obedience in the power of God. And so that's when, when we put ourselves in that position that we, we, can, we can receive the blessing that Paul offers of grace and peace which come to us. Grace and undeserved favor with God, relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Peace. A certainty of, of who I am because of God's sovereignty, that I am not lost or alone in this world, but God is with me. And I now have peace with God. I've been reconciled with God through the death of Jesus Christ. See, many of us struggle with, with feeling worthless. And in those feelings of worthlessness, we then become helpless. There's nothing left I can do. But here's what Paul is saying. Your status does not change. You have been sanctified. And so that gives you confidence then in your ability to change. You can be holy and become more holy this year than you were last year. Because God has sanctified you, you can now fulfill that call to be holy. The call is a, is a reminder to us of the grace of God that comes to us through Christ Jesus. The response is that we then call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is telling the Corinthian church, live like who you really are. Remember who you really are. Jesus died for you. Now live knowing that that's true. Cecilia Sheehan was only four years old when the plane she was on with her family crashed. She was the only survivor. The plane had taken off from Detroit's airport and clipped a light pole with its wing. So it took out the, the, the roof of a, of a rental car building and then crashed onto a highway, leaving a, a half a mile of wreckage in its wake. Cecilia was the only person to survive. 154 people on board died, along with two people who were on the ground who were killed by the wreckage. Rescue workers found Cecilia buried in that wreckage. She was still strapped into her seat and and investigators think the reason that she survived was because of her mother. Knowing that the plane was going down, her mother unbuckled herself and climbed onto Cecilia's seat and wrapped herself around Cecilia. Cecilia was only four. She doesn't remember it. She woke up in the hospital. She went to live with an aunt and an uncle in another part of the country. She didn't ever speak about the crash until she was 30 years old and she was interviewed. She says that, that her body is left with scars from the plane crash, but, but she put a mark on her own body. On her, on her left wrist, she put a, an outline of an airplane, tattooed it on her wrist. Which to us initially seems kind of strange. Why would you want to be reminded of that. She says, I got the tattoo 
as a reminder of where I've come from. It's a reminder of who I am. Because for Cecilia, it's a reminder of her mother's sacrifice. It's a tragic symbol, but a beautiful symbol. Like the crosses which adorn our pendants, a tragic and horrific symbol of death and destruction, but a beautiful symbol because it reminds me of where I've come from. See, I've been rescued by one who who unstrapped himself and stepped down from heaven and took my place on the cross. So the Apostle Paul is reminding us, reminding the church in Corinth who we are. We have been called, we've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. We are the church of God. We have been called to be holy. We're reminded of, of where we've come from so that we know how we're supposed to live now. For Cecilia, that that tragic reminder lets her press on day to day knowing the love of a mother who would sacrifice herself. And so as we come to the table, we come remembering the grace and peace that are ours. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our rescuer, our Savior, We need the reminder of grace because we need to remember where we've come from and who we are meant to be. And it puts us in a position where we can then really hear these words as words of comfort and hope. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Bow with me as I pray. Father, we come as people who need to be humbled humbled of our arrogance and self-sufficiency, humbled of our, of our self-authority. Lord, we need to see the authority of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. For those who, who have listened to your word that, that have not called on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord, I pray that even now, as we are praying, Father in heaven, that you would grant them faith to believe, to repent, to turn to Jesus Christ and find salvation. So that these words from your, your gospel can be words of comfort and blessing to us. Lord, for us who have, who have put trust in Christ, let us live with hope in this gospel. Live lives of holy obedience because of your grace shown to us. We come in Jesus' name. Amen.